Hey there, listeners. All of us here at Everything About Hydrogen appreciate the world is a little upside down at the moment. Whether you're getting used to working from home or wherever you find yourself, we hope you and yours are keeping well. Today's interview and episode were recorded earlier this year before the current state of affairs. We hope you enjoy. And now, back to the show. From the Inspiration offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, Associate Director here at Inspiratia. With me in the studio, as always, is my lovely colleague, Patrick Malloy from Rocky Mountain Institute. And calling in from the UK, CEO of Proteum Green Solutions, Christopher Jackson. How are we doing today, guys? Pretty good, Andrew. Pretty good. How are you? Well, living the dream, living the dream. Chris, who are we going to talk to today? So today we're going to talk to Mark Neller, who is a director at Arup. Arup are a leading engineering and consulting business in the UK uh, with a lot of expertise in sustainability and renewable energy. Um, the reason why we like Arup and we thought they'd be great for the show is because Arup is helping the British government's department of, called Bayes, uh, which I'm sure will be rebranded by the time this episode goes live and the government have decided to make it into three new ones. Um, but essentially, um, the British government is running a program called Hydrogen for Heat or High for Heat. Uh, looking at how hydrogen can be used across residential, industrial, and commercial businesses to decarbonize the UK. And Arup are essentially their technical advisor that's helping them to not only do all the research work and structure all of that into various different work packages, but also oversee all of the allocations for grant funding and for procurement of different technologies to help stimulate and grow that market in the UK. So Mark should be able to add some really nice perspectives into the discussion. Excellent. And Chris, I realize in my rush to get you to introduce today's guest, I did not allow you to answer the question of how are you doing? How are things over there? <laughs> yeah, they're good. Well, of course, you know, the thing is now that, uh, you know, we're, we're fortunate to have so many wonderful guests on the show. There's a slight delay on the episode. So uh, the, the guests listening to this will probably find it quite funny. <laughs> yeah. So by the time this one comes out, <laughs> yeah, our life updates will be slightly out of uh, out of whack. Speaking of yeah. which, I understand you may be going to a hydrogen uh, event in Wales. Did I catch that correctly? Yeah, you did. So uh, the Welsh Hydrogen Association is due to launch uh, this this week, although I guess I say it's sort of maybe something amusing about calling it this week, given that it's going to be quite late. But um, that will be on Wednesday, the 26th of February. Um, so it'd be really exciting. Um, the Mark it down in history, people. Leading. I know. Well, so, of course, Wales was the home of the first fuel cell. Um, so there is a sort of nice symbolism to the whole thing. Um, so the gentleman who's led the charge on that is a guy called Guto Owen, who's done a lot of fantastic work with the Welsh government, local businesses and uh, other businesses across the UK to kind of really try and push the idea of Wales as a hydrogen hub. Um, it's quite interesting in, in the UK, there's kind of a lot of fragmentation in the trade associations. There's a UK one, there's a Scottish one, there's a Welsh one, there's a Midlands one. So, you know, it, there are a lot, but I guess it also speaks to the fact that, you know, as Patrick's always fond of saying, there's so many different applications and use cases for hydrogen that you there is still some merit and still a lot of value in having associations for specific areas because there are different needs and different applications and they do need a slightly different sort of focus um, to them and to the objectives they're trying to deliver on. And so, uh, but I think it's hugely positive for the space and given the uh, history of industry in Wales, it's great to see um, that hydrogen is now being seen by government and by businesses there as a big part of how we get to net zero. Very cool. Well, it'll be a nice challenge for our uh, listeners to try and reverse engineer exactly when we've recorded these things <laughs> versus the release dates. So 
this will this will be a particularly good one. And on the on the topic of old news, Patrick, what do you, not you, not you? What do you think? <laughs> are you making yeah. a nice old age? Yeah, yeah, Patrick? yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, to be honest, we could make uh, this seem really old, and we could give Patrick a hard time over the Six Nations rugby result. Oh yeah, we had a little chat about that on the way over here in the car. What uh, yeah, what happened? How's Ireland doing? Not great after yesterday, but uh, you know, I, di- I didn't many- mention anything about France uh, maybe two weeks ago. So like, I feel I feel like I'm being targeted by a certain uh, member of the Welsh Hydrogen Association. <laughs> well, with that all in mind, guys, that actually wasn't the old. That wasn't actually the old news I was referring to. Believe it or not, uh, I was going to ask you guys uh, what your thoughts are on uh, Nicola's announcement of the Badger. Any any thoughts, Patrick? Chris, who do we start with? Patrick, do you? I, I think uh, I think Chris is probably the target market for. Oh, wow, <laughs> you guys are both trying yeah. to both trying to shove this one off on each other, huh? Well, I mean, you know, London is hardly a prime market for a huge uh, SUV-style 600-mile truck. I mean, 600 miles in the UK would probably get you from John O'Groats to Land's End in the UK. Although I'm sure our it's an interesting irony that everybody's complaining about range, <laughs> and then all of a sudden they bring out one with a long range. There's ah, it's too much, too much. <laughs> Dial it back. Well, I mean, it's it's look. So for people who don't know, I mean, the Badger is a truck concept that uh, Nikola actually originally offered to Tesla in November of. 2019 yeah, and it was a little uh, bit of a tongue-in-cheek offer but no but i mean Maybe it was, a it was more a of a twi- taunt than a an offer yeah exactly it was a twitter challenge which uh, seems to be elon musk's favorite way of uh, business development uh, but it was a twitter challenge by trevor milton from nicola basically saying hey look we've got this suv truck design um why don't you guys come and have a go at that and obviously the timing's interesting because it's not that long ago that we had the Cybertruck launch um, and obviously that's created a lot of stir in the market. And so the idea of a 600 mile SUV, you know, with all the performance benefits of being electric, but being able to refuel in the way that hydrogen vehicles can is, is really exciting. I mean, for suddenly a lot of markets like US, Canada, Australia, um, other markets that like bigger cars, I can see the appeal probably less relevant for the European market, but who knows, frankly. Fair enough. What, I mean, what, what would you think, what would you think about then perhaps, uh, like the Rivian R1S or the Rivian R1T, right? They're all, they're fully battery electric, similar price point to the Badger. If I'm, I think the Badger's higher end, uh, but they're, they're 400 miles per charge. Is that, is that the sweet spot for you, Chris? Well, look, I mean, the, the, the Hyundai Nexo, which is already on the roads today, SUV is 400 miles and the Mirai was 300 miles. I mean, I, to me, I think I would have thought 400 miles is probably sufficient for most people, even a lot of commercial applications. It should be enough. Um, you know, it is one of these strange things where there's very few vehicles that are consistently, or sorry, light duty vehicles consistently doing that kind of range. So, you know, I think the Rivian in some senses more just appeals to that kind of uh, North American audience where there is just a lot bigger travel distances. The average travel distance, you know, maybe is not so dissimilar to Europe, but you do have these huge distances. And so range gets sensitive in in places like the UK. I mean, 400 miles, I think, would get me from London to just past Newcastle or thereabouts, which, you know, is a huge chunk of the country. So, you know, effectively one refuel and I could get right from the bottom tip to the top tip on 400 miles of the UK. So it, it is it is a different it is 
is always like Patrick is talking about the fact that we have to look at these things in different markets. And for me, I mean, I think a lot of people in the UK will say that battery electric will make more sense just because the ranges on passenger vehicles are much lower. And I'm not sure that that works so well in Australia or in the US. And maybe that's why something like a Badger actually does have a market, even though there are other great competitors like Tesla and Rivian that are out there. Well, you heard it here, people. RJ Scaringe and Trevor Milton, take your pickup trucks and take them elsewhere. The UK doesn't need them. You can tell Andrew's been I'm waiting for his electric Hummer. Yeah. This is it. What's your take, yeah. Andrew? I mean, what would you, what, you, know, you know, as our resident battery vehicle expert, what's your kind of view on it? Do you think that there is a sense that in the US people really uh, want to see these kinds of vehicles? And, and, you know, how do you think US consumers will respond to something like the Badger as opposed to a Rivian or as opposed to a Tesla or even a BMW or VW equivalent? I think, actually, Chris, most of what you just said is pretty much dead on for the American market. And let's be honest, like you, in most of the cities you lived you've lived in washington i mean in most of the cities we don't <laughs> much like europe uh americans are, are emotionally attached to their long range and large vehicles but uh they really aren't that necessary in an urban landscape so uh from that standpoint that's all similar uh but your analysis of you know when you head out sort of to mid the midwest and western states and states like texas uh you know these pickup trucks that are being used out there actually are frequently heavy duty and, and work uh, work vehicles. So they do need to have range. They do need to be somewhat rugged. So this battle of the pickup trucks, uh, I think is, you know, that is very specifically targeted towards the North American market. And I think it makes, you do hear a, a good deal of chatter uh, from people in working in sort of utility industry and in uh, industries where they do have to have a, a heavy duty truck uh, say that they are interested in battery electric or even hydrogen fuel cell vehicles uh, if they can handle the range and handle the the power the power demands right so I think the badger and uh, the r1t and even the cyber truck I think they're a nice fit uh, r1t you know pricing wise is maybe a little off the mark at the moment but you know that can all be solved with time I suppose and I know uh, Rivian is working with uh, with Ford to redesign the the F one fifty platform to be entirely battery electric. So that's probably uh, that's probably the next big move. Yeah, well, after the Mustang, of course, as well, which is now electric. <laughs> yeah. I'm the Hummer. Yeah. And the Hummer, yeah, that's true. Andrew's getting a Hummer. That's, that's, that's what he's he's being very quiet about it. But yeah, he's always trying to aspire to surprise to be a Hummer you guys. Driver. I pick you up from the airport in a uh, in a new electric Hummer, Chris. There you go. Can't wait. All right. Well, I think we should probably give Mark a call and get him on the line, huh, guys? Hello, Mark. I was speaking. Hi, Mark. This is Andrew Leadham from Everything About Hydrogen. How are you? Hi. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing great. I've got Patrick on the line with me. Mark, if you uh, could tell us, uh, what is the UK government's Hydrogen for Heat program? Okay, so uh, this is a program being run by the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, which is looking at the safety, technical feasibility and user acceptability of hydrogen as a replacement for methane in the gas distribution network. It's particularly focused on the issues inside the consumer's home, downstream of the emergency control valve. So that's the isolation valve that's typically inside the consumer's meter, meter installation. 
and its overall objectives. And then uh, could you tell us a little bit about where the project stands today and sort of the timeline uh, that you guys are looking or that the Hydrogen for Heat program is looking at for deployment? The Arup Plus team uh, was appointed just over two years ago now in November of 2018. And the overall objective really is to is to work out whether or not this is something that's safe to do, whether it's technically possible to do it, and whether or not consumers will accept it. And certainly in the in the first two years of the program, the focus has very much been on the technical and safety aspects of, of the work. So um, uh, the sort of few of the packages that we've been responsible for have been defining the standard of hydrogen, um, the quality of the hydrogen that would potentially go into the network. Uh, that's then uh, allowed us to award contracts to appliance manufacturers to develop hydrogen appliances that would use that level of uh, purity of hydrogen. So an example of that would be the uh, uh, work that's been done by Worcester Bosch in the development of hydrogen-ready boilers, um, and also the same work that's been done by Baxi. So both those boiler manufacturers have received grants under our program to, to demonstrate that you can you can produce prototype hydrogen-burning uh, boilers for domestic consumers. So so following on pretty directly from uh, boilers and, and, and kind of heating systems, you know, how, how does uh, hydrogen for, you know, industrial heating or industrial kind of decarbonization kind of work? Where, where do you guys see this kind of fitting in? Um, maybe just before we go on to that a little bit more about high for heat, perhaps can I just talk about the, the safety aspects a little bit first? So um, on the safety side of things, what we've been doing is conducting uh, a lot of experimental work. Um, so we've been looking at um, uh, how hydrogen moves around inside the copper pipes that are in consumers' homes. We've look, been looking at how it compares with methane, uh, should it leak. And uh, we've also been, um, we've been looking at the, um, the, the whole of the safety aspects and, and comparing it with methane. And later on this year, we will then be able to uh, announce the sort of the results of that as a comparison between the safety associated with methane and the safety associated with, uh, with hydrogen. And that will then lead to, um, after we've looked at the technical side and we've looked at the safety side, if, if as we, we suspect, we're going to con conclude that it's possible to, uh, to do this from a safety and technical perspective, we'll then be moving on to looking at how consumers interact with those appliances that have, uh, that have been developed for use with hydrogen. Uh, and, and all of this is about preparing for possible future um, community demonstrations. So that would be where you would take um, some actual consumers' homes and you would ask them to sign up to convert uh, their their uh, domestic gas supply over from methane to hydrogen. That's the whole purpose of the program, to work out if that's something that's uh, safe and technically possible to do. And then assuming that it is to actually then proceed and do that and see how consumers respond to those new appliances. Mark, if I may ask very quickly, uh, you mentioned something, and, and forgive me if I'm uh, somewhat off base here, but I think uh, my understanding is that particularly in the in the actual distribution, the gas grid itself, the one of the questions of safety is around the metal piping and distribution grid versus a polymer piping. You just mentioned that in the house, 
uh, we're looking at copper piping and the safety aspects there of hydrogen input. Is the same concern present that copper piping may not be able to handle uh, certain levels and concentrations of hydrogen, or is that not as much of a problem once you're actually into the house itself? Well, that's that's exactly what our program is designed to look at. So uh, one of the pieces of research that we've commissioned is to take a range of different um, domestic pipework configurations um, generally speaking, the, the pipes inside consumers' homes are either made of copper or um, steel, uh, and we've been testing those general configurations to see whether or not uh, the hydrogen is any more or less likely to leak than uh, the methane is. Um, so we've been looking at uh, situations where you know, there's no there's no leakage whatsoever from um, from methane. We've then been putting hydrogen in instead and seeing whether or not there's any evidence that uh, hydrogen will leak where the methane doesn't. Um, so that's exactly what the program is designed to test. Um, if, if I can just briefly on the on the, the gas mains side of things, there's a, a whole body of work being done within the UK at the moment looking at um, the uh, exactly the same set of issues for both the cast iron low pressure mains and, and the polyethylene um, low pressure system as well. Um, and, and of course that's a very different pressure rating tier to the, the high pressure steel pipelines um, and, and there's work being done looking at looking at those as well, particularly in terms of embrittlement at those much higher pressures. So Mark, yeah, just to follow on in terms of the, the heating aspect again, um, where do you see this kind of, or I suppose the application for hydrogen and industrial heating and, and, and what kind of scale or impact on kind of industrial decarbonization do you think it can have? So that's not a particular piece of work that we're looking at on, on the BASE, the Department of Business, Energy, Industrial Strategy, High for Heat program, beyond the work that we've done looking at the, the small-scale industrial and commercial applications. So for, for sort of very large industrial commercial applications connected to the network at above seven bar, that's being looked at separately. For the low-pressure stuff uh, that's very similar to um, the domestic supplies, uh, the reports that we've been commissioning on behalf of government have broadly concluded that um, there are no particular showstoppers. So there's a report that's just come out on the High for Heat website by uh, an, an organization called Element Energy. They did a, a very detailed study that looked at sort of the low pressure end of the um, industrial side of things. And they concluded that there were you know, no real showstoppers with converting those from methane to, to hydrogen. So we could see a very wide scale and widespread conversion um, from from methane to hydrogen for that sort of in, element of industrial decarbonisation um, in much the same way that uh, we saw a conversion from Towns gas uh, to, to methane in, in the UK in the 1960s. Mark, where do you and, and Arup see the mo the biggest opportunities uh, for hydrogen in the heating space overall? Um, so I think where we've got to from an, uh, an Arup perspective is very much saying that uh, we ought to be looking to decarbonise both our electricity grid and and our gas grid. So, you know, we're, we're, we're equally passionate about seeing uh, more and more renewable electricity generation in order to decarbonize the electricity grid alongside what the widespread conversion of the gas network from methane to hydrogen, and then really putting this down to consumers to choose. So we, we would see a, a situation where on a sort of a city-by-city a, a city basis, conversion would take place from uh, natural gas 
to hydrogen, with consumers being offered the choice of either moving on, on to the hydrogen solution or moving to electrification or some kind of hybrid solution. And as long as um, consumers are correctly informed about the choices and the consequences of those choices and that the, uh, the costs are equitably spread and socialized, uh, we, we think that um, an element of consumer choice in that is, is really important. We think, though, that given that there are currently somewhere in the region of 20 million domestic properties in the UK running on, on natural gas, it's very difficult to see how you could end up with an, an energy system that doesn't have a, a pretty large number of those domestic properties still connected to a decarbonized gas solution such as hydrogen. Just as a follow on to, you know, obviously consumer choice is, is a big kind of driver in a lot of markets. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, when you consider the UK market, uh, what policy kind of requirements or barriers do you think are key or have been key to unlocking this space? Yeah, so I think it's very much a, what will be key to unlocking this space. So I think that's uh, uh, one of those kind of key challenges that we're going to face in the next in the next few years. Once the Haifa Heat program and, and the gas distribution programs have have concluded um, that that this is something that's safe to do and uh, is technically achievable, I think uh, we'll then be moving on to looking at what the policy enablers are. And I think there are certainly some really interesting lessons to learn from history about how the conversion process was managed in the 1960s. But we clearly need to sort of bring those up to date by looking at um, how we can introduce competition, how we can introduce consumer choice and how we can introduce market forces. And I think designing those processes and policy enablers alongside the process of, of putting in place the engineering that will support them is, is really the work of the next, uh, the next two or three years. I think if you look at the way offshore wind has been stimulated to, to build out in the UK, again, that's another really good example of a, a successful policy intervention um, that's delivered the required outcomes. Um, and, and so you could see how that sort of a model could be used to gradually build up hydrogen blending into the network at up to 20% before then looking at, um, uh, at converting particular locations. So you could potentially put obligations on energy suppliers to have increasing amounts of decreasing carbonized gas and then have a, a kind of an auction process much as we do for, for offshore wind for hydrogen production and, and then look at having a, uh, a hydrogen transmission backbone that allows the hydrogen to be moved around to where it can um, where, where it's required and where you can get the blends up to 20% before you then need to look at um, 100% conversion. Mark, just in terms of, of ARAP itself, what, what have you guys kind of uh, got in the pipeline, if you will, no, no pun intended, but um, no, what, what, what are the projects that you you're, you're seeing that maybe you can talk about or tell us about that that you think are uh, particularly exciting or, or demonstrate kind of what you guys are doing in the space. I think there's a there's a lot of a lot of interesting stuff going on at the moment. So uh, Arup have been involved with uh, looking at the port of Auckland in New Zealand. So we've been looking at a, um, a hydrogen project there that uses renewable energy to produce hydrogen to uh, decarbonise the infrastructure around the port. We've also done some work for the New Zealand government looking at their hydrogen strategy. Um, we've just picked up a piece of work working for the Scottish government on their uh, hydrogen roadmap and hydrogen strategy. We've been working for one of the gas companies in the UK, SGN, uh, on their proposed 
uh, hydrogen for heat demonstration, uh, H100. So that would see uh, a community of about 300 homes um, converted to run on 100% hydrogen produced from um, an offshore wind turbine. And we also have a project that we've just completed the feasibility study for in London, which is a project called Project Cavendish. And that uses advanced methane reformation to produce low carbon hydrogen, which could be used to decarbonize power generation and the gas network in the London area. Fantastic. We are mindful of the fact that you have probably two minutes to go here. So we will let you go and get back to your your normal day. And we wanted to thank you so much for, for joining us. And we really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no problem, guys. Thanks so much, Mark. All right, guys. So uh, just a quick note. Uh, may have noticed that Chris was uh, less involved than usual on that uh, call with Mark. Uh, unfortunately, we had a little bit of technical difficulty on our end. And, uh, Chris, I thought you just muted him. <laughs> yeah, well, I tried. <laughs> I just dropped him by accident. We couldn't reconnect. Mute or no. So. Uh, but we've got Chris back. Chris, how are you? How are things since we last talked? I de- devastated, obviously, to miss Mark. Um, but, you know, I, I'll try not to take it too personally that you guys cut me off. So, uh, yeah, maybe well. this is payback for the uh, for the number of questions that I asked on the Caden episode last time. I know. We missed you, Chris. But uh, the upside is that I get to grill Patrick first after the call instead of you this time. So, uh, so Patrick... What was the most interesting thing that we heard from Mark? So I, I think this was a, a very well-timed and sequenced uh, follow-on interview, having having spoken with Caden Absolutely. last week about the uh, kind of natural gas infrastructure effort. You know, Mark talking to, you know, the domestic consumption and, and the, the potential for uh, hydrogen and decarbonizing home heating particularly. Very useful, very insightful but also, you know, it's very easy with a lot of these things to talk about these monstrous production projects that you hear going on and, and not really follow the stream all the way down to the end consumer and what that looks like, um, or at least not, to, uh, not to, to kind of dwell on this. But, you know, when you talk about the, uh, the process by which you get to that final consumer, whatever the, the application, that's one of the big challenges. That's one of the target areas that is particularly uh, troublesome uh, and, and right now probably in most places pretty expensive. Um, so a lot of good insights there. Obvi- obviously, the the focus on on safety is 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 critical right now uh, when when mobilizing this towards uh, kind of uh, kind of home heating and domestic use. Um, and obviously, yeah, like like we got through through a lot of kind of specific challenges and details, whether it be the the metals in the the home piping systems versus the the kind of the gas mains. Yeah, lot lot of lot of good stuff in there. Yeah, Chris, what are you? What are your thoughts? I mean, you know, I know you weren't able to hear to hear Mark's specific comments, but what do you uh, what do you know about the the hydrogen for heat project, and what are your thoughts from a commercial and consumer perspective, but also from a safety perspective? Obviously, there's a danger for me to talk too much about the UK specifically, and then maybe not bring us in the broader context, but. One of the things that is interesting about hydrogen for heat is the context in the UK at the moment. I mean, you know, in the start of this year, the UK government's just put in a ban on certain types of wood that you're allowed to buy to burn at home, which has kicked off all sorts of issues in rural areas around how people are supposed to heat their homes if they can't use coal and if they can't use less efficient types of wood. And it's, in some senses, the opening salvo of this big problematic question of how do you decarbonize heating at the residential level, which is extremely emotive. And, um, you know, 
while there is a lot of discussion in the UK and in a number of markets, California, also now in Germany and in Scandinavia around should you just ban new gas connections for new homes and new residential properties and just go all electric, there really is also that sense that consumers like having gas, especially where consumers are used to having gas. And so how do you kind of balance those two things? Um, in the UK, Worcester Bosch have been uh, released a hydrogen-ready boiler that can, run, that can run on natural gas and then transition to 100% hydrogen when the gas grid changes. And so that's been released to a lot of fanfare. And now Worcester Bosch are trying to push UK government to legislate that all homes should have any new boilers being put into the home should be hydrogen ready by I think it's 2025, which obviously is pretty short time frame. Um, but it, it, you know the thing is, if you make an investment in a heating solution for homes, these things are meant to last, you know, 10, 20, sometimes 30 years. And so, if you're trying to transition an entire country to net zero, you really do have to start moving quite quickly when people are making these capital investments in the next couple of years. So. I think what Arabs works really interesting is trying to demonstrate how we can actually do this in a sensible way. And the Hydrogen for Heat program has been great for that because it does break packages between what are the specific needs for a home versus the needs for large scale industry versus the needs at the commercial level. And how do those three different user user groups kind of fit into a coherent structure? And, you know, we're still not finished. The process of all these reports and all these grants are still coming through the wash. But um it's definitely one of the most joined up approaches I've seen to thinking about decarbonization of heat in a G20 country. And, you know, it'd be great to see kind of more countries starting to do that as opposed to it just being done on maybe a city only level or maybe even if we're lucky at a provincial or state level. Yeah. And, and Chris, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take over Andrew's chair for a minute and ask you kind of a question around this. You know, you, you spoke about the uh, the domestic kind of focus right around, uh, in, you know, home boilers and whatnot. How is that looking at the industrial level? At the industrial level, we've, you know, so the UK government in February 2020 announced a, um, a series of uh, projects that it had funded under the UK's industrial fuel switching strategy, looking at ways to use hydrogen for industrial heat. Um, you know, and there were some quite big projects announced. I mean, probably the one that caught most people's attention was Unilever, because um, Unilever is a big producer of, um, you know, consumer goods, but a large industrial, you know, uh, customer, sorry, brand uh, was looking at using multi-megawatt uh, hydrogen boilers for heating applications. And, you know, this is something my company, Proteum, has been talking to customers about, and it's it's an idea that's starting to build interest in the UK and indeed in a number of other markets, notably Netherlands, Germany, Norway, and and some markets in North America as well. Um, and, and it kind of makes sense because what people somewhat forget is uh, people fixate on the cost of hydrogen versus natural gas. But in reality, if you are a consumer-facing business and energy costs in aggregate cost maybe 2% of the total value of your end product, then if your consumers are saying that they want to see you making substantive commitments towards reducing your emissions, and in fact, some customers are saying that they're going to leave you as a potential customer unless you commit to net zero and demonstrate that you're doing that, then paying a premium to go zero emission maybe sooner than the pure market economics would dictate actually makes a lot more sense. You know, we've heard a lot of noise about industrial uses of hydrogen for things like the steel industry. And we've seen pilots in Austria and in um, the Netherlands and in Sweden that are starting to look at that. And we've seen discussions around hydrogen in ammonia production in places like Australia, 
where the Australian government's just given some grant funding to do a feasibility for Yara and for Angie. And also in um, Quebec, there's also now a project to do more green hydrogen and ammonia. But those are products that as commodity products have quite tight margins. And it's not so clear to me that that really is going to be the first place where you're going to see an industry hydrogen really taking off. But actually, hydrogen for heat in sectors that are very consumer facing um, is a really live and hot space. And I think um, we're just going to hear more and more about that. And certainly my company is seeing a lot of interest in the UK around that. On that note, I read that uh, article on uh, the UK's ban on wet wood and uh, you know, because of its contribution to particulate uh, matter pollution. And I did see quite a, I mean, not a huge section of the article, but a, a good portion of it devoted to the fact that there's still, in the UK at least, a relatively substantial rural population that has no in-home heating infrastructure other than uh, you know, sort of a wet wood-powered boiler. And a, a good bit of discussion as a result of that from people in those areas saying, well, we don't have the money to afford to install this kind of uh, at-home heating infrastructure. Uh, you know, this wet wood bur- uh, burning furnaces or, uh, or heaters are the only way we have that, that fit our budget. Is it reasonable to expect or has the UK government already said we'll foot the bill or at least fit foot the bill, a substantial portion of that bill to install this this consumer facing uh, infrastructure, heating infrastructure? It is really emotive. I mean, um so the UK yeah, like may be too simplistic of a way of looking no, at it. You fine. guys can certainly dive down a bit deeper if that if that makes sense. No, that's fine. So look, I mean, um, countries like the UK and the Netherlands that discovered very large natural gas resources in the 70s and 80s um, have built most of their infrastructure in a way that is quite different to a number of developed economies. So, you know, district heating schemes are very widespread in a lot of Europe as and are a very cost effective and, and arguably more climate effective way of heating homes. But in the UK and Netherlands, because we've had a gas grid, we went down a different pathway. And in some senses, that makes the decarbonisation story harder because instead of trying to decarbonize a few central heating points, you're trying to decarbonize a network that affects multiple individual homes. Um, In the UK, and I believe it's the same in the Netherlands and maybe the same in a number of other large gas countries, around 80 to 85 percent of homes are on the gas grid, um, which obviously is substantial. But, you know, in a country like the UK with 27 million households, that still leaves somewhere between five to seven million homes that are not really on the gas grid. So that is a non-trivial amount. And I have uh, friends of mine who live in country locations where they still rely on um, oil deliveries. You know, so they effectively are using sort of thermal oil um, you know, as a heating solution. And certainly in parts of Scotland and the Highlands and remote parts of the countryside, um, people do use things like coal or wood. And there were also, in fairness to many people, incentives from the government um, in the first phase of um, the decarbonisation transition to use more biomass and biomass stoves at home. Um, so it's been quite a complicated um, picture. And, you know, there are a lot of people saying maybe there should be a direct government grant for these homes to transition. Um, but like everything in the decarbonization transition, there are really complicated questions around who should be footing that bill and how what's the most effective mechanism for that. You know, normally we could take an approach that if a utility was responsible for providing this service that they could then put this through their rate base, and then that gets distributed across all consumers evenly. But most residential households that are not on the gas grid will have quite often their own local um, supplier, and it might be quite a small local supplier. So then 
what where does the funds come from does there need to be a separate government uh, funding pool that then effectively is putting these small local businesses into administration because their business models are no longer wanted or or at least paying them to help them transition across and what should they be moving to should they be being connected to the gas grid should they being asked be being asked to go all electric um, you know, is hydrogen ready to be deployed at small scale into these communities for heating? It, it's quite complicated. And, and in some senses, the, the thinking hasn't been all that well joined up. Um, but, you know, this, again, isn't, isn't a uniquely UK problem. This is also something that is like a, it comes down to a wider thinking around um, how good for the environment and for local air quality really is biomass and biogas. You know, and it's it's interesting because when I was working at the bank, for example, the World Bank will classify biomass into two different categories. And this is also what the International Energy Agency does. They go traditional uses of biomass and modern biomass. And so the theory is that modern biomass is when you're using an ultra efficient stove and you're using sustainably sourced, you know, wood or whatever other biomass resource you're using. And traditional uses might be someone using animal waste or just picking up wood by the side and lighting a fire. But actually, in reality, it's much more complicated. And, and sometimes it's as stupid as suddenly a country has switched from being developing to developed. And so the wood that's being burned at home is now classed as modern use instead of traditional use. And so from a policy side now, it looks like it's good biomass demand as opposed to less good demand. And, and the energy gang had a big debate about this recently. Uh, Jigga Shah was pulled in on whether or not some of the California Public Utility Commission's rulings on what to do with biogas is good or bad. Um, you know, and, and it is very emotive because he made the point, I thought rather well, that if you're creating all of these waste materials, you should be encouraging people to use biomass and biogas. And a number of people in the UK have been saying, if I'm collecting wood locally and burning it on my stove, what's the problem with that? And if I'm selling it to a few neighbors, why is that a bad thing if it's just fallen from local trees? So it's not just about what is the academic, scientifically perfect way to do this. It's also about what is the right emotive and economic approach to take. And I'm not sure we've necessarily found the balance there yet. Uh, and Patrick, you know, if you've got a perspective from Ireland that you can share, because I know this must be an issue there as well. Um, I can't imagine that this is uniquely UK thing. It would be interesting or even a you know, US perspective, given that both of you have some awareness of that market, too. You guys are doing a great job doing my job today, actually. I was going to do exactly that question to you. So over to you, Patrick. Ireland. <laughs> I, I, w- I would think that in different or slightly different ways, most countries have this, you know, urban versus rural challenge, right, in, in respect of, of home heating. I think when you look back through time at the scale of build required for rural electrification, and you can look at most most developed countries in the world and, and you know look at the challenges that they had back, you know, depending on when, like fifty hundred years ago, you know, more. You can still see those those challenges uh, occurring in, in a lot of developing uh, countries and developing markets as well. This is not straightforward. And it, and it won't be. Uh, the biomass point that Chris speaks to is, you know, it, it is a very uh, disruptive uh, thing to turn around to somebody who, on on the basis of maybe partial government subsidy or guidance, and convert it over to a biomass source. Um, 
to suddenly X years later find that they're out of favor or they're no longer good, let's say. This is the definition of why we need a, a better systemic design, right? Like you have to be thinking about all your needs. Um, you know, we, we talk, we hear an awful lot over here in the US around electrification, electrify everything. And, and there is a very strong case uh, for making that effort in it, as much as we can, as far as we can, as deep as we can. Um, but there are also challenges that, that limit the capacity to, to do that in every sector, right? So obviously we talk a lot about industrial uses, that, that being one of them, right? In, in many cases, you do need some form of a, a molecular energy or molecular feedstock, right? We end up in a situation where we have to think about a very broadly built dynamic system that will allow people to make uh, stable and solid kind of investments in their homes and, and, and for their future without necessarily detaching them entirely from, from the transition we need to make. It's, it's, it's a pretty, pretty substantial challenge. You know, if, if you want to talk about the US, if you go down to Georgia, you'll hear an awful lot of folks talking about biomass and sustainably uh, uh, developed biomass. Um, why? Because that's a sector that's starting to grow there and starting to get some actual, you know, good, good impact, right? So simply put, you know, we need to, in the same way as we have historically thought about mass electrification, right, in, in many countries, um, we need to now start to think about that sort of scale of development, right? How are gas systems, if, if we want gas systems for specific positioning, work? Uh, where we want electrification as the priority or kind of the primary kind of use. And, and you know, folks folks can install heat pumps in their home and they work pretty well. Um, maybe in the UK, it's easier to do that with gas given pre-existing infrastructure. There's there's no problem with that so long as we're identifying the the, the carbon impact of, of those systems against each other, right? Um, so... Yeah, this is this is messy, and until you narrow it down to a specific locale or a specific kind of grid or a specific uh, gas system, um, you're you're kind of dealing with the the issues of that uh, of the collective uh, sectors on mass rather than actually looking at the the challenges of a specific system, and and I think that's the the key thing here in the UK. They very clearly invested very heavily. Um, through Bayes and a few other things to to go down this path of looking at hydrogen as a substitute for natural gas and to develop a grid that is capable of doing mass substitution. Uh, that that you know as much as there's been a lot a lot of good work there, um, this is still early stages in that transition in many ways. So we, we we have to be optimistic, but but we have to be aware of the fact that yeah this is this is a long road to go in a lot of this stuff. And speaking of the United States, Patrick, I'm not going to let you go just yet. In sort of urban areas, and perhaps you, this is not something you have a particular amount of expertise in, but if you do, uh, in urban areas that are on a gas grid in the United States, let's take Washington, D.C., for instance, I mean, that is on a gas grid, although I, I do have a friend in Mount Pleasant who still gets oil delivered, which was really bizarre, because uh, I lived in Mount Pleasant, and we were on the gas grid, and we were about a half a block away from him, but here we are. In Cities in the U.S., urban areas, or areas in the United States that are connected to the gas grid. My understanding is our gas grid is still quite predominantly, if not entirely, metal piping, piping that is not polymer, cannot handle the 
uh, substitution of hydrogen for for methane or natural gas. Uh, is that accurate? Or are there other are there some markets that are further ahead in in uh, fitting for the future, if you will? The kind of uh, plastic piping systems obviously have a distinct strength in terms of transitioning between natural gas and and hydrogen. Depending on the age and type of the metal piping, that can be a problem or not. Typically, older piping with you know specific kind of tensile strength and exposure, and and this is it, right? Embrittlement is um, is a risk factor in part because you're putting hydrogen gas under pressure, right? Um, so it's a combination of factors of the, what pressure you're you're moving the gas at, and also the the kind of construction of the metal piping. Is it an issue? Yes, it is. It is an issue that has to be thought about carefully. But also, when you hear folks talking about uh, blend, um, when blend is smaller, or like when you see f- systems where they say, "Oh, a six percent blend or a ten percent blend," part of that is down to uh, uh, risk and issues around piping and embrittlement. Uh, the predominant issue, and we talked about this in the previous episode, that you you get exposed to is the um, the substitution of the the burners at yeah, the, the consumer end. Yeah, I was going to but say. But there is a there is a pipeline constraint aspect that can emerge. Sure, it's not every system. It depends on on the type and design of your infrastructure, and. Um, you know your question to Mark earlier about the, the you know copper piping or, or steel piping in the home is, is an appropriate one. Having said that, the the question is then also what pressure is it coming into sure. your home at? Sure. Right, Chris. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about? Huge amount, obviously uh, covered, and I think it's fantastic. And you know it's nice to have done um, two episodes now on uh, heating and industrial applications for hydrogen and moving a little bit away from the transport side. I think in terms of uh, next episodes, just something for our listeners to bear in mind, we are getting some great um, recommendations from you guys about um, who you'd like to have on. And we do take them really seriously. I know a lot of you have asked about ammonia and other forms of storage. So we are we are looking at that. Um, but equally, you know, if there are things that you think we're, we're missing, do get in touch. Um, we're trying to cover as many of the bases as we can. But um, obviously, your emails and your support means a lot. So uh, just let us know. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an excellent point, Chris. I'm going to make a, make a note of that. We are getting your emails, guys. Uh, we have not done a question and answer session for a little while, but we'll make a note. We have noted them all down. We will be responding. Just and you wait. We <laughs> look at <laughs> okay, you're going to get what you asked for, guys. Uh, but stay tuned in the next episode or so, and we will actually start going through those and uh, and talking about them individually and uh, potentially identifying you guys by first names. So, you know, listen for your shout-outs out there. <laughs> all right, guys, that does it for us today. I want to uh, thank Mark Neller, director at Arup in the UK, for joining us. We really appreciate him uh, bearing with us through some technical difficulties and uh, really giving an excellent interview. It was uh, great to have him on the show. Thanks to Patrick and Chris for joining me, as always. And most importantly, thank you very much to our listeners. We really appreciate the support. And we do actually read your emails and love to hear from you. So please do reach out with any questions or comments. Uh, You can reach us at podcasts at inspiration.com or tweet at us at About Hydrogen on Twitter. Chris reads all of those. I might not, but hey, here we are. 
And uh, if you guys are enjoying the show, please do leave us a positive review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast content. It does help us reach a larger audience, and we really appreciate the support. So thanks very much, guys, and we hope you'll join us next time on Everything About Hydrogen. Hydrogen.